Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, a story from our podcast, The Other California, takes us to a rural church that has anchored a farming community that started with Japanese immigrants more than a century ago. And a CSU Bakersfield student reflects on her term with the university system's board of trustees. But first, methane is a powerful greenhouse gas around 25 times as potent as carbon dioxide. One major methane source is livestock, which is why the state is pushing hard to reduce methane emissions from dairies. KVPR's Carrie Klein has this story about a promising technology being pioneered at dairies right here in the Valley, and why not everyone thinks it's a slam dunk. Steve Shahadi's family has been in the dairy biz for a long time more than half a century. Big dairy family, yeah, since the 1940s. And I'm third generation, and I got a daughter who's interested who's probably going to be fourth generation. His dairy in Kermit, called Bar 20, is one of his family's newest. He and a handful of industry reps are giving me a tour. We start on an electronic platform where cows are being milked, and we see some other technology, too. Want to see a fuel cell? Yeah. (laughs) The dairy is so modern, it produces not just milk, but also electricity. And that powers electric vehicle chargers owned by BMW. The technology is called a fuel cell, and it's powered by manure, specifically the methane coming off of manure. And then from the fuel cell that goes into the electric grid, it interconnects with PG&E. So extra power goes straight into the grid for everybody to use. Manure is responsible for about a quarter of the state's methane emissions. Cow burps are a major source, too. At bar 20, the fuel cell is powered by an anaerobic digester, which traps the majority of methane from the dairy's manure. Here's how the digester works. Manure that would typically be stored in an open lagoon is instead funneled into a lined and covered basin. It's the size of 40 Olympic swimming pools. You definitely want a wetsuit. Not recommended at all for swimming in. The methane, which puffs up the cover like a balloon, is siphoned off to the fuel cell where it's converted to electricity. Digesters around California are estimated to have already prevented more than a million tons of emissions. But as they've advanced, the state and the shahadis have found themselves fending off criticism of the technology. That's despite the fact that the state touts it as one of California's most cost-effective climate change fighting tools. And so if you can clean the air and produce renewable power for the state, I mean, especially as we're converting to more usages for electricity, it seems like a great solution. Digesters are a fast-growing business. In 2015, the state had funded six of them. By 2020, that number had skyrocketed to 117. But that growth is what worries community advocates. Dairies with digesters receive financial credits for the emissions they capture. It works like cap and trade. But advocates are calling on state air officials to stop offering credits for digesters. Here's Phoebe Seaton, co-founder of the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. Any program that actually incentivizes the creation of methane and also the perpetuation of the unequal kind of local and regional burdens of dairies is problematic. She also argues that by monetizing manure, digesters encourage dairies to expand their herds. And she's concerned that could contribute to water contamination, odors, and other air pollution in nearby communities. Data to confirm herd size is hard to come by, and the industry says the idea of manure driving dairy growth is hogwash. Still, Seton and others argue that even with digesters, dairies have no place in California and that the government needs to step in. The state is responsible for creating this policy framework that is continuing to dump on communities in the San Joaquin Valley. Air officials estimate that meeting the state's climate goals would require constructing another 200 digesters by 2030. 
But Michael Bocadoro, a lobbyist and executive director of the nonprofit Dairy Cares, warns that losing emissions credits would kill those projects and export our environmental challenges. Dairies won't be able to get the projects built. Cows end up on U-Hauls and they end up moving to another state where the problem is going to be exacerbated. So less regulation, less efficient production, higher methane, higher global warming. Credits amount to millions of dollars each year for some dairies. But Bocadoro points out that's not the cash cow it sounds like. Engineering firms, developers, and other companies all get a slice of those profits, too. According to Steve Shahadi, the Bar 20 digester and fuel cell cost $13 million. So the prospect of annual credits did grease the wheels. But he's got his eye on other existential threats, too drought, water restrictions, rising costs of energy and fertilizer. And so he views that income as a matter of survival. There's only so many ways to make money on a dairy. It's your milk price, your, your beef price, and your manure now. And so how can you maximize each area of your dairy? With such a high price tag, he suspects it'll be a while before he sees any return on his investment. For KVPR, I'm Carrie Klein in Kerman. This story is part of the Central Valley News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation, with technology and training support by Microsoft Corporation. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. In Fresno Unified, Black students make up about 8% of the school district, but Black educators make up less than 5%. The lack of representation is an issue students in the district are highlighting in the wake of recent racist incidents. KVPR Sarith Hawk reports on how the district is addressing those concerns. Fresno Unified trustee Keisha Thomas says racism on district campuses is nothing new. But the way students have mobilized in the last few weeks has made her feel proud. Just for finding their voice, you know, it takes a lot of courage. Speaking from her office in downtown Fresno's old security bank building, Thomas had just returned from a lunch with the Black Student Union at Edison High School, the area she represents. For the first time um, ever, I think that Everybody hears the kids. On May 6, hundreds of students representing Edison and Bullard marched downtown in response to a widely shared social media photo of a Bullard High student wearing what looked like a KKK hood. They had an agenda. They had a map of where they would walk and how they would get there. They had parents bringing them across town so that they could be a part. You know, that was a historical moment. Students have reported an increase in racial harassment since the photos circulated and other racist social media accounts were also discovered. At a Fresno Unified board meeting following the protests, Bullard's BSU president, Tatiana Asbury, said her school didn't do enough to respond to the incident. Literally the second day after all this happened, no one asked us if we were okay or if we really like, like, were like actually felt comfortable to go back to school. And one of Asbury's main concerns was safety, addressing threats of violence and bullying at school. While going to school, I've had students like say things towards me specifically and like say the n-word towards me and point and smile at me. Trustee Thomas says representation was a major topic of discussion at her lunch with Edison students. That was one of their asks. Can you have more people that look like me? These are really important conversations to make sure our African-American students and our students of color um, and just most vulnerable students in general are really being prioritized and um, protected in this moment. That's newly elected trustee Andy Levine. We're at a coffee shop just across the street from Fresno High, the area he represents. When you see yourself in your, um, in your, in your teacher or your mentor, then I think it, it just opens up a lot of different conversations. And he says the district is making an active effort to hire a more diverse staff. Fresno Unified was just awarded a $12 million grant from the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing to expand its teacher residency program starting in June. There may also be additional funding to hire more diverse counselors, too. Levine says this grant will have a specific focus on black educators. 
I don't think there's been an explicit intentionality around um, uh, addressing uh, underrepresentation of African American teachers in Fresno Unified. So this this is the first time this this component of the new grant would be, I believe, the first time that we've done that, and I'm really proud that we're um, taking that step. But Keisha Thomas questions whether that will be enough to meet the needs of Fresno Unified students. We need to be able to have sufficient funds to train them. We need to have sufficient funds to be able to help them move. There, there's so many and thens. You know, how much is $12 million really going to um, help our district when we have a billion-dollar budget? According to Levine, a lot. The grant could lead to hiring 48 potential new teachers for Fresno Unified over the next five years. And in the meantime, Thomas says students have learned to lead their own way, including voicing their needs with the administration. Well, they're telling the adults <laughs> that, they, that we, you know, hey, you look like you need help. <laughs> So here, let me help you. Let me tell you what we need. With graduation coming up, many of the students who are leading the movement will be off to college soon. But the work doesn't end with their departure. Thomas says students discussed ways to stay involved even after they leave campus. That includes building a mentorship pathway so that they can work with students still in Fresno Unified. There's so many different ways for us to be able to communicate now that it, it, it doesn't make sense for them just to be gone to college and then nothing happens. Thomas says soon it will be the next class of student leaders pushing for representation and accountability. For KVPR News, I'm Sari Hawk. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. And now we turn to a story from our podcast, The Other California. This week, we're in the town of Livingston in Merced County. Host Alice Daniel begins at a rural church that's still an anchor for a farming community that began with Japanese immigrants more than a century ago. The service inside the Livingston United Methodist Church is just ending. About 20 people are gathering up their things and loosely singing the last verse of the hymn, Pass It On. Some start to walk out of the chapel, and as I follow, one man welcomes me and quietly quips that the congregation is getting on in age. He's in his 70s, he says, and he's one of the youngest in the group. I laugh because I'm here to meet someone who's been alive for almost a century, a 97-year-old Japanese-American farmer who has attended this rural church set among almond orchards his entire life. But before I find Sherman Kishi, let me tell you why this church is unique. Its history begins with the Issei, first-generation Japanese immigrants who came to Livingston around 1907 to join an agricultural community called Yamato, or Japanese colony. The farmers built their own packing shed and started a co-op. It later merged with another farmers association to show unity after World War II. There was an understanding with the town that these newcomers would stick to farming and not compete with commercial businesses. The founder of Yamato colony, Kyutaro Abiko, was Christian, and the church was the community's anchor, the center of much social life. It still is, although the demographics have changed and the church we're in now isn't the original structure. After the service, I find Sherman sitting on a bench in the main hall, eating his lunch. There are sandwiches and homemade cakes on a table nearby. You can tell he's loved here as people come by to say hello and check on him. So Sherman said his his caregiver is coming to pick him up. I sit down and ask him about growing up here. We really stayed separate from the townspeople, and uh, we didn't go to church together with them or anything, so... Sherman tells me he grew up just across the street from the church, in a house where his daughter now lives. When Sherman was a kid, his family farmed grapes. They had various varieties of grapes, and they used to, I guess they used to market that into the Bay Area mostly. Uh By 1940, about 70 Japanese families were farming more than 3,700 acres in Livingston. These days, the farmers here are a more diverse group, 
But some of the original families, like Sherman's, remain. The church itself is a mix of people whose family histories include places like Lebanon, India, and Europe. The minister's family is from Korea. <laughs> yeah, we have all kinds of people. Well, that's nice that we have all kinds of people now. All kinds of people. It mirrors Livingston itself, a town of about 14,000 that celebrates its diversity with larger-than-life steel cutouts or sculptures in town of people representing various immigrant groups who have made contributions. Livingston, by the way, was named for a celebrity, Dr. David Livingston, a missionary and explorer known for his anti-slavery stance. Even as Yamato Colony was thriving in 1940, World War II changed everything. In 1942, the residents were sent away by the U.S. government to concentration camps. The church was actually the first place they gathered as they were rounded up, Sherman says. We were all taken in from this area right here because this was our main church at the time. And uh, we went from here to the, to the assembly center in, in Merced. The assembly center at the fairgrounds, built in 11 days, where thousands stayed for several months. After that, they were sent to a concentration camp called Amachi in Grenada, Colorado. Yeah, we had no choice whatsoever whether we wanted to go or not. And uh, we, were, we were just taken out and... Uh, sent, to the, sent to the camp that we went to. Sherman was 17. He remembers what the camp was like. All built of barracks, yeah. There were, there were hundreds of barracks, and I don't remember how many barracks there were, but there were a lot of them. But by the end of 1943, he was recruited to go to language school in Minnesota. He knew some Japanese, but not enough. And supposedly I learned the Japanese language there. <laughs> Well, I knew a little bit, just enough to talk to my folks and things, but nothing, nothing at all sophisticated. After that, he was sent to the Philippines for a few months. It was Allied translators and interpreters section. But you know, that's interesting. I, I don't ever remember doing any translating or interpreting. <laughs> he says his youth played in his favor during the war, that it was much harder on his parents, who were stuck in the camp for three years. My father was not well. He was, he had, uh, I guess they call it Bright disease, kidney, a kidney problem. He required a special diet that Sherman's mother used to make for him, but not while he was in the camp. People ate whatever was served in the mess halls. Sherman says his father died shortly after he returned to Livingston. After the war, Sherman attended UC Berkeley, where he was a wildlife conservation major. And he married a woman he knew well. They grew up together in Yamato Colony. June died two years ago. How long were you married? 74 years. <laughs> yes, it was a long time we were together. Fortunately, the farm remained in the family after the war as did most farms in Yamato Colony. A land manager had been hired to oversee many of the properties. Sherman says he grew almonds here for decades. No, I don't even remember when we stopped farming. Must have been, I must have been about getting close to 90 years old when we stopped. That was only seven years ago. Before Sherman gets up to leave, I ask him what coming to this church for so many years means to him. His reply? Sort of like coming home. <laughs> coming home. The bonds in what was Yamato Colony still run deep here. Like Sherman, Gino Kui has been coming to this church for decades. She plays the piano here most Sundays, although on this day, her granddaughter sat in. On another day, I catch up, or at least try to, with Jean at her farm just down the road from the church. Jean walks really fast. Jean, you have to wait for me. <laughs> She's moving through the rows of her almond orchard like, excuse my French, a bat out of hell. And I, meanwhile, keep getting entangled in branches that grab onto me. 
I know, right? Okay. I'm trying to keep my mic on her so I can record what she's saying, but my headphone cord is caught on a limb, and she's a couple yards ahead of me. Wait, wait, wait. I have to have the mic on you because it won't pick you up otherwise. Jean moves fast, works fast, drives fast, and talks fast. She's almost 82 in years, but in spirit, she's young. We're walking from her 900-square-foot straw bale house through the orchard to a farmhouse where her daughter now lives with her family. It was built in 1920, and it's called the Okui Mansion in a book about Yamato Colony, a book that Sherman's niece wrote, by the way. Jean's husband, Paul, was born and raised here. And he and his three siblings um, all went to school here until World War II. When they, like Sherman's family, were forced to leave the farm and assemble at the Merced Fairgrounds before being transferred to the concentration camp in Colorado. Paul was nine years old. And uh, then they were put in a train. They had to keep the blinds down on the car, in the cars so they couldn't see where they were going. Jean is not Japanese, and she's not from Livingston originally. She and Paul met through music in Santa Barbara. They played and sang in a trio, whatever was popular on the radio, Splish Splash by Bobby Darin or a polka for dancing. They were living in Montecito, California in 1980 when Paul's brother died. That's when they moved back to run the farm, Jean says. And I taught piano in the home there and uh, went from that to driving a tractor. And I learned a lot about farming because I thought if I'm going to farm, I better know what, what to expect. Jean took a class in orchard and vineyard management, and she did the majority of the farming because Paul had Parkinson's disease. He felt very comfortable here. He knew all the people and all of the Japanese-American farmers around us. They said, we'll do anything to help you. And I remember one year we had our nuts all in a row be picked up, and they couldn't pick them up yet. And it rained, and we had to spread them all out. We had five tractors show up to help us. It's just amazing, you know. The farmers often work together like that. Paul died in 2001, and Jean ran the farm alone for several years before her daughter and son-in-law took over. Jean says she really took to farming, and she puts a lot of thought into being a good steward of the land. The farm runs on solar, and 14 years ago, she got a conservation easement so the farm can't be developed. Mugicha is a Japanese name for barley tea. Back inside her straw bale house, which she says stays cool even in the hot summers, Jean sets out two glasses of tea. It's popular in the summertime, she tells me, as she offers some lemon from her lemon tree. <laughs> Thank you. You're good. Tie in the nature. <laughs> She's laughing at her attempt to tie in the barley tea with the land around her, lemons from her tree. But it's a theme that deeply matters to her. We're all connected. As I think a lot of people don't think they're part of the, the system in, in uh, nature, but we all are. And I have a saying above my computer that reads, if you take care of the birds, you take care of most of the big problems in the world. She also has a sign that says, Lord, slow me down. I've got a reputation of being, a, what do they call it, the something bunny. <laughs> energizer. Yeah, Energizer Bunny. That's a, I've got that as a nickname with several people because I just keep going. She's worked with all kinds of land preservation groups, Valley Land Alliance, American Farmland Trust, and on and on. And right now, she needs to head to a meeting in nearby Merced to talk about sustainable groundwater management. She shuts her door before I leave this earth and goes into a teachable moment about the cycle of life. I will or get returned. <laughs> I'll be made, hopefully made into compost or something. Dead things <laughs> provide carbon and food, and that makes room for new life. I can't help but laugh, and maybe I shouldn't, but I tell her... I don't think you're going to die anytime soon. <laughs> I don't, you never know. You never know, but I mean, not, not from old age. <laughs> And then Jean gets in her car to head to her meeting in Merced. I follow her out the driveway in my own car, but I don't even try to keep up. She's left me in the dust.
This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Crystal Reynes just graduated from CSU Bakersfield with a degree in computer science. But for the past two years, she also served as the student representative to the CSU Board of Trustees, representing students during the pandemic, as well as the hiring and resignation of CSU Chancellor Joseph Castro. I caught up with her the day after her final meeting to reflect on her experience. Well, you are the first student from CSU Bakersfield to hold this position uh, with the Board of Trustees. You must have felt a great responsibility to stand up for the interests of the San Joaquin Valley. Yeah, I, I it was a lot of pressure because, yes, I'm the first CSU Bakersfield student trustee. I know we did have, luckily, an alumni trustee from Bakersfield. And uh, it, it was a lot of pressure. And so when things came up, like the resignation of Chancellor Castro, who's from the Central Valley, it, it really was a different kind of hurt and different kind of thought process. And I, and I saw that with especially the other people. There are two other people on the board, uh, Diego Rambula and uh, Yamalet Rodriguez, who are from Fresno. And so we had this different sense of the situation when it came to that. But definitely, it was a lot of pressure. (laughs) What would you like to see the CSU system learn from um, what happened around the sexual harassment claims uh, at Fresno State during Castro's presidency? I think first, before we learn anything, I think there needs to be a recognition of Chancellor or President Castro at the time was advised by Chancellor White and therefore by the board. And so I am really good friends with somebody that has a rafting company. And I promise this will be relevant. Uh, when he had a rafting company, he told all of his guides going down uh, these intense rivers that no matter what you do, no matter how inexperienced your crew is or experienced your crew is, if you flip your boat, that is your fault as a guide. And so I I think of that as lessons for the board of trustees because we are the governing body, right? And so I think we first have to recognize that it's a shared responsibility in this case. It's not just Castro, it's the system, right? And so that recognition first and foremost is critical. Moving forward from that of what I hope we learn is that if you hear something going on, especially as an MPP or manager, in other words, you need to report it to Title IX, even if it's an inkling, even if it's a rumor. Um, I know in this specific instance, somebody actually came to Dr. President Castro at the time and made a informal report, a concern, um, and that should have been reported. And so I think we need to learn that those instances we do need to bring to the Title IX office, but also I'm looking forward to seeing the results of a, we launched a system-wide assessment of all Title IX offices. And I was lucky enough to visit all 23 campuses. Something else that I hope the assessment reveals is that our Title IX offices are underfunded. Title IX is an unfunded mandate from the federal government. Um, It is needed on campuses, that's 100% sure, to make sure that um, these instances of sexual harassment um, and sexual assault are dealt with, um, but is an unfunded mandate. And because of that, it is up to presidential um, priorities to how much they fund the office. I've been to campuses where there's only one Title IX coordinator Uh, and one investigator for about 10,000, 15,000 students. And they're in charge of not only students, but faculty and staff, sometimes alumni. And so I hope that we learn that sometimes the Title IX offices, 99% of the time are doing their best in these issues, but we also need to recognize that we're overworking them, we're underfunding them, and they do need more support. The third and last thing that I'll leave you with is that I hope we learn that survivor advocates, CSUB does have one um, or did, uh, unfortunately, because of the low pay that that is inherent with the CSU in general. Uh, survivor advocates are, for example, what I use to get out of a abusive situation, but it's not 
Title IX, this person is a confidential person who's connected with the community, can connect you with resources, and is very trauma-informed. And so this person is absolutely critical uh, to making sure that a survivor feels comfortable, has the resources that they need, because Title IX can be intimidating. And the process could be traumatizing to, to survivors. So we need to also fund the survivor advocates who are trauma-informed and make sure that those students get the resources that they need. So all in all, I think just, I hope we learned that that system needs to be fully funded and more staff and less, less time sharing hats or responsibilities. We, we, and I think we owe that to our students. You took a leadership role in the CSU's decision to add CAST to the ancestry portion of its anti-discrimination policy. Why was that such an important issue for you? Yeah, so during my time as a Bakersfield student leader, I suppose, uh, I was involved with CSSA, the California State Student Association. And this whole conversation began when I served on their board on behalf of CSUB. Uh, Actually, I believe I served on one of the committees rather than the entire board of directors, but that's a little detail. Uh, I was witnessing this conversation of caste happening. And what these activists did is that they pursued first the student route. They wanted to make sure that this statewide organization that represents the official voice of CSU students was behind adding this idea into the anti-discrimination policy. And so I will admit to you, I had no idea what CAST was. And I saw these students first make a presentation, non-controversial presentation, gave a little bit of information. And I said, okay, it didn't hit me as to how it actually plays out in America. Because to me, it seemed, it seemed at the time before this was brought to the chancellor's level, before the organization actually passed their final resolution, it seemed to me that this was an international issue. But I realized how wrong I was when the final reading of this resolution, the final reading that would allow the vote to pass it, that there were, I want to say about 100, then maybe that's a hyperbole, but there were so many people. This was an online meeting, so many people that came out to speak against this caste resolution. And I was so confused because I thought it was non-controversial. You know, it sounds like the right step in civil rights and in my head, okay, this is a right step in civil rights. This may be an international issue, um, but I think it's still a good idea. But seeing it happen online in America with American citizens saying things to students that shared their stories about caste discrimination, caste oppression, people came to public comment and said, no, caste does not exist in America. How dare you say that? I'm a paying, I'm a tax paying citizen in America. So these people weren't even students. There are some people that came and said, I'm a tax paying citizen, a concerned citizen. And I'm afraid that this is going to be discriminatory against Hindus. Um, And so I, I kept hearing this rhetoric and this was right after the murder of George Floyd. And I kept thinking, where have I heard of this rhetoric before? And it finally clicked. And I said, this sounds awfully like the gaslighting that Black people in America face, saying that by passing Black, pro-Black civil rights legislation, that it would be anti-white, much like how they were saying it was anti-Hindu, as well as, oh, it it doesn't exist. I've never seen it before coming from someone that is caste privilege. And I saw, and I thought, oh my goodness, it just clicked, that this is not just an international problem. This is a worldwide problem that also happens in America. And so after that meeting, after it was passed, that I got in contact with the activists uh, and we moved forward making meetings with the chancellor's office to talk about uh, what would this mean? What are the legal ramifications of it? Why it's okay? Um, as well as they had all the information, right? I was the I was only the facilitator in this whole conversation, but they were incredible, and it it's it's definitely something that's needed. It's been a national conversation for quite a while, pre even pre pandemic, and so I'm excited to see how this will play out nationally. So one other issue you advocated for was that the CSU divest from fossil fuels. Was there any conflict there for you, given how important the oil industry is to Bakersfield? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was born and raised in Bakersfield, and I also went to Independence High School. 
And if anyone has ever attended Independence High School, they know there's actually an energy academy that Chevron funded. And something that really got me interested in going to higher education was a summer program that I took that was sponsored by Chevron. And so really the oil industry has been such a, they, they really funded this education, pursuit of education and love of knowledge for me. And so knowing that not only does the oil industry drills oil or gets natural gas, um, they also provide to the community. That's the part that really got me conflicted. However, I know that looking at all the science, I, I was truly concerned about what would happen to globally, not just Bakersfield, but globally, what would happen if we continued to uh, drill oil um, regardless where we were. And let me take you through the rationale of my thinking. I was really motivated by this because this was, I think, summer of 2021. And the fall before, you know, Kern County and the entirety of California woke up to orange skies. It looked like Mars because of the fires that were happening in Sequoia, fires happening in Yosemite fires happening in LA, the Bay Area. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I, I it, it, just seeing that issue be so close to home and breathing in that smoke really made me think, okay, how can we be good stewards of this earth? Um, how can we protect places like Sequoia where I went to every summer and that's where I really found a love for nature and a love for earth. And so that really helped my decision-making. Also, one um, important thing to note is that many oil companies, ERA, Chevron included, um, really big uh, companies in Bakersfield, they're also diversifying. And so they are also investing in solar and wind um, and, and hydropower. And so there's also more and more jobs opening up in, in Kern County and the Central Valley for green energy, more and more solar panels and um, wind turbines up into Hatchapi, for example. Um, that are happening. And I think that's really exciting. Something also to note is that this may be a CSU Watt, CSU specific um, divestment, but CSU Bakersfield, who has intimate ties with the oil community, and I even use the, my engineering building was funded by Chevron at Bakersfield. They are still, I believe, uh, invested in, 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 the, in the community with the oil. And I realized how important that is. And I didn't want to take that away. And I wanted to make sure that with this divestment, it was only the essentially the chancellor's office, the, what the chancellor's office had control over in their finance office. They have no control over the individual campuses in terms of where they invest their money. And so that also made me think, okay, I think this is a good balance. And I, and I felt more at peace with that compromise in my head. How have you grown as a result of this experience? Well, I think I've definitely matured a lot. Um, to, to give you a sense of how turbulent my um, uh, term was, I got interviewed by the governor's office two days after the, we shut down as in California for the pandemic. My first meeting ever was interviewing the new chancellor who ended up being Dr. Castro. And my last meeting, uh, which just happened yesterday, was... Uh, welcoming our new interim chancellor after the resignation of a chancellor, which first time in history, right? And so it's it's taught me a lot, especially when it comes to lessons of trust, when it comes to lessons of accountability, and when it comes to lessons of transparency, as well as how can I use my voice and my position of privilege to make people feel heard? And how can I just be a facilitator for people who have legitimate concerns, much like with CAST or divest the CSU from fossil fuels, I, I learned how important it is to just connect people to the resources and, and the rooms where it happens. And I think that regular people are often shut out of those conversations. And I, and I fully believe in my leadership philosophy now that much more than I've realized before, it is so critically important to have everybody at the table in the room where it happens. And so in, in all, overall, this experience has taught me that I would 
like to continue my career serving Californians, um, hopefully serving the Central Valley, uh, but it just depends where I get a job, right? And I, I'm looking forward to working in the state capitol. Uh, I applied to the Capitol Fellows uh, Assembly Fellowship at Sacramento State, and I got in. And I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to uh, working with California and see how we can serve Californians better. Well, the students of the CSU were certainly fortunate to have you uh, serving as their, their representative, and, and it's going to be fascinating to see what the future holds for you. I've been talking with Crystal Reynes. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Kathleen. And finally... For more than two decades, the Jakara movement has worked to support and advocate for the Punjabi Sikh community. Now its executive director, Nandeep Singh, has won a James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award for his work. I spoke with him about how the nonprofit partners with other community groups to address some of the region's most pressing issues. I understand that the Jakara movement was inspired by your experiences growing up in the Central Valley. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, I can't take all the credit myself. There was like a large group of folks actually that really started the Jakarta movement. Mine was probably one voice in that. But in some ways, it was really just talking to our friends, our families, our relatives, our neighbors. And um, just uh, we wanted to create a place where Punjabi Sikh youth really throughout uh, California, for that matter, just to be able to come together, uh, share their experiences and, and find community with one another. So one thing that I think we have in common is that we're both boomerangs. We grew up in the Valley. We were born here and then we left. And I guess in your case, went to UCLA and then Johns Hopkins and Maryland. What brought you back to the Valley? You know, actually, it was um, my father got ill some years ago, and it was uh, talking about with my mom and uh, just wanting to be able to support uh, him through that, Mm. that initially brought me back. But, um, you know, I've always had a very fondness for the Valley. Whenever you end up in other parts of California, you end up having to defend the Valley. And so my, my Valley pride never left no matter where I was in the world. Hmm. I, I definitely relate to that. So, you know, for those folks who are not familiar with the Jakara movement, tell us a little bit about it and the work that you do. So the Jakara movement was born actually here in Fresno, in fact, uh, as an annual conference at Fresno State uh, back in 2000. And what was largely just high school and college youth coming together really to give voice to what they felt their issues were. Oftentimes, um, in a sort of second generation immigrant experience, you know, over the years really kind of became a movement throughout California. So today we have uh, chapters really across the 99 from Bakersfield all the way up to Yuba City in the Bay Area, as well as where we run sort of youth programs. We have over 70 high school chapters. Uh, We have a housing rights team. We have a labor rights team. You know, we have a health team really in sort of just a variety of different local and statewide issues that affect our communities as well as that of our neighbors. You know, so one area I know that you're involved in is uh, around language access, which is so significant in this region because Punjabi is the third most spoken language in the Central Valley, yet many in-language materials are just not uh, written in, in the Punjabi language. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done in that area, maybe particularly around the pandemic? Sure. So in, in some ways, that was a, a wormhole of itself. Uh, back in 2017, 2018, I was helping a family friend of mine, their grandfather, get a bus pass. And while we were at the fax terminal, uh, I noticed that there were timesheets in a variety of different languages. In fact, those that I knew were spoken a lot less than Punjabi, but sort of noticed that nothing was in Punjabi. When I s- spoke to the um, the woman that was the attendant, of course, she just said, you know, that's my job. I, I don't know what's out there. Um, it was really digging on the internet that I found out that the information to make those determinations in this particular case was the COG, but ultimately they were getting information from the Census Bureau. So we really started our conversations there uh, with the Census Bureau, finding out why 
uh, Punjabi had not been recognized as a separate language, despite it being one of the most, the top 10 most spoken languages in the state of California, and of course, the third most in the Central Valley. Then it was really just working with our uh, local officials from Congressman David Valadeo, Congressman Costa, and so many others um, to make sure that Punjabi language was recognized. And then subsequently, it's still has been an uphill battle because um, while that was done at the federal level, we've been working with uh, state and local governments just to make sure that um, statutes of the law that call for language access are actually being provided. And, you know, that that goes from the school board level, you know, to the to uh, to my grandfather's uh, bus pass. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the census. I know you were very involved with the 2020 census. Uh, share a little bit about um, the importance of, of that that uh, census process. In some ways, it was uh, really kind of layered on top of our language access work. And, you know, when we, we really began to understand, you know, why it's important to be counted, who gets counted, who doesn't get counted, and what the repercussions are. And it was in that conversation that we began forming partnerships with different community-based organizations in uh, 14 counties across California, again, from Kern County through Fresno, you know, from Madera, all the, all the way up to Sutter, uh, where we were able to, at least in the groups that were working with the state of California, I think we had the largest geographic expanse than any other group. We were able to touch over 100,000 to 200,000 Californians to participate. And it wasn't just in the Punjabi community. It was really going into neighborhoods, whether it be in the city of San Joaquin or the town of San Joaquin in Fresno County or Wasco down in Kern, just to make sure that all neighbors were participating and understand the, the significance of their participation. And for a lot of people, it was just a wonderful way for them to feel like that their government or or even their larger community saw them and counted them. You know, one of the biggest issues facing the Central Valley right now is affordable housing. And I know the Jakara movement has been involved in work um, to uh, create more affordable housing opportunities for the Punjabi Sikh community. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your future plans are in that arena? I think housing is the issue in California today. If we are going to have a state that continues to where people can thrive, they, you know, housing really has to be a human right. And you know, for the last you know, decade and, and more, the supply has not kept up with, with the demand. And so you know, we have been in various conversations in the city of Fresno. We've been a partner uh, with their, with their uh, rental relief assistance. We've been a partner with the state of California. But we're really part of um, key coalitions in the city of Fresno, especially with Faith in the Valley uh, and other organizations, really thinking about housing in more creative ways and making sure our most marginalized communities, making sure that those on the margins are really in the center of discussion because how we treat our neighbor, how we treat that who has least is probably the biggest reflection on who we are as a community. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that jumped out at me as I was um, doing my research uh, leading up to this conversation is the the number of partnerships that you've established in order to accomplish your goals. And why is it so important for you to work with different parts of, of the community? You know, very strong within the Sikh tradition is a is a feeling of salt of sovereignty. And that that meaning you have to be strong, you be have to be able to. Uh, you know, be economically independent, politically independent, but sovereignty without solidarity is not transformative. And solidarity without sovereignty can also be just tokenism. So both have to be informed. You you have to uh, inspire, ignite, and 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 form deep sort of mutual aid and strength within communities. But the only way we do anything transformative is what we do together. You know, we're at a time when many of us are feeling overwhelmed, we're feeling fed up, um, we're feeling burnt out. And I'm wondering how you stay motivated to keep working to improve the community and, and how much of that is rooted in your faith. I think a big part for, for me is, is, is rooted in faith, but ultimately, you know, the, the expression of, of the divine is really through people and through the creation. And so for me, it's um, getting to meet great people every day. 
uh, you know, walking the neighborhoods in, in West Fresno, talking to neighbors, um, helping someone fill out maybe some immigration forms, helping someone, uh, you know, just in a, in a difficult situation. But it's really just kind of those inspiring stories that keep us motivated together. This weekend, we were part of a huge block party that brought 1,500 residents from all over West Fresno together at the just once in Colorado Park. So it was just a day of smiles, food, music, laughs. And, you know, those, those are the things that just keep you going, keep you excited, keep you inspired. And, and you know, life is struggle, but, but the way we struggle together ultimately is sort of uh, gives definition and gives meaning to this life. Well, I know your background is in education and this is a, you know, we've been through such an incredibly difficult couple of years um, as a result of the pandemic. So I'm wondering, as an educator, what are your thoughts about what we need to do to improve outcomes for our students? Listen to them more. Currently, I'm, I have the opportunity to serve uh, as a Central Unified uh, School Trustee and uh, the, the, the best insights I ever get are just listening to students and le- listening to those that are most engaged with students. Oftentimes, adults, we believe we know what students need, and sometimes it's a projection uh, of what we, wish, what we wish we had. But the thing is, we always have the lens of who we are today. When you talk to students, they'll tell you definitively how they're feeling, um, the supports they need, how they feel that despite an increase of resources being spent around sort of uh, social emotional services, that oftentimes it still eludes them. The average student doesn't get sort of the the support that they still want and, and that which they still require. Well, you know, before we wrap up, for those listening who are uh, just hearing about the Chikara movement, for those interested in learning more about the Punjabi Sikh community, uh, where do you, uh, what do you suggest? What do you recommend they do? I mean, uh, the, uh, of course, the easiest place I'll definitely share in terms of our organization, you know, we're on, we're on social media, you know, shoot us a message on Twitter or Instagram or visit us at our website, shoot us an email. Our team is, you know, here to serve the, you know, obviously the Punjabi Sikh community, but even beyond, you know, from, especially in KVPR's area from Bakersfield uh, through Fresno. But um, it is a community that is, it is a community that really does try to embrace um, others, even though sometimes community members don't always know how to, uh, to kind of express themselves in, in an inclusive manner. So I think it's really just having conversations with your with your neighbors. If we can be a resource, we're here. Maybe if you'd like to visit your Gurdwara, your, your local Gurdwara, but I would first say strike up a conversation with your neighbor. That's, I think, good advice for all of us. Thank you so much for saying that. Uh, I've been talking with Nandeep Singh, co-founder of the Chikara Movement and winner of the 2022 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award. Deep, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Kathleen. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.